Ah, yes, yes, yes. Happy holidays to you and you and all of you, no matter what holiday you celebrate, even though it's Christmas. I don't care what religion you are, it's Christmas. Happy holidays to everybody, Christmas. Let's be honest, it's just an American holiday now. Most people. They're not tracing the roots back to Jesus Christ. Most people are writing a wish list, stuffing a stocking, and celebrating with eggnog and ham. Put up the lights. Unwrap the gifts. Let St. Nick shove his fat ass down your chimney. I'm okay with it. Honestly, I'm okay with all of the traditions. Is it painful for every little Jewish boy and girl to find out that Santa is not coming to your house? Oh, yeah, yeah. Sure is. Painful to hear that the Easter Bunny doesn't care to hide eggs for you? Uh Uh-huh, sure, yeah. I'm not going to shed a tear here. I've already dealt with all the trauma. But Christmas has evolved into what America celebrates. It's a great consumerism holiday. And it's fun, and it's festive, and it's full of joy. And it creates a day on the calendar where really nothing is open except for Chinese restaurants and movie theaters for the Jews. And that's exactly what we do. And we love it. Wouldn't have it any other way. Chinese restaurants, movie theaters, here come the Jews. I have plenty of non-Jewish friends who like to wish me a Merry Christmas. And they say, how are you celebrating? What do you do for Christmas? The answer is simple. Chicken chow mein, beef with broccoli, shrimp with lobster sauce, war wonton soup, and do it again and do it again and do it again. And then whatever is playing at the theater Or on Netflix. Interestingly, a lot of the non-Jews think that Hanukkah always aligns with Christmas. It doesn't. But guess what? Jews also never really know when Hanukkah is. It floats around. Is it early December? Did it creep into November? Is it after Christmas? So I couldn't even tell you right now when Hanukkah is every year. It just creeps up on me. I Google it, and that's when we start lighting the candles. But December 25th, that's the big one. That's what people mean. When they say happy holidays, it's around December 25th. So Merry Christmas, everybody. Where did the Chinese food tradition come from, you ask? You didn't? But now you're wondering that? Yeah, let me lead you down this path. My good buddy Isaac, he texted me. Here's where it comes from. And Isaac, here's a nice Jewish fella who used to visit me in San Diego for Christmas. And we'd go to a Chinese restaurant. And he had the audacity to actually ask the waitress, do you know why this place is so packed with Jews tonight? And she laughed, shook her head, and left. And then eventually brought us more hot tea. But I thought, wow, my friend actually asked the waitress, does she know? They know. They know. On Christmas, I went for lunch, not even dinner. I went for lunch to Ping's. It was like a Manhattan nightclub at midnight. Place was packed. People were dressed up. It was a scene. That's what it's become, a scene for the Jews to congregate. This is Christmas. And it all goes back to the early immigrants. Actually, it probably goes out way before that in Europe. But the American tradition, the early immigrants, the Jews and the Chinese people lived in a similar neighborhood in Manhattan. And by 1936, this is what I read, there were about 18 Chinese restaurants in the vicinity. 18, that's a lot. And the Jews had one go-to called Ratner's. That was the famous Jewish restaurant in Manhattan in the 30s. And they'd go to Ratner's on church Sundays. It was safe. It'll keep you kosher. But something about the actual 
rules of keeping kosher, not mixing dairy and meat. Chinese restaurants, you never risk eating any dairy. There's no cheese. So it was a safe menu. And the proximity was close. If Jewish people and Chinese people are living close together, they're probably going to sample one another's cuisine. So were there some early Chinese immigrants that were eating bagels and lox and whitefish and chopped liver? Sure. But that's not what this is about. This is about the origins of the Jews eating that Chinese food on Christmas. And now it's evolved. It truly is a scene. And it's fun. And it's unavoidable because nothing else is really open. And Santa Claus ain't coming. So there's a little history. If you need more, just Google it. Google everything. Google the lyrics to your favorite Christmas songs. A rump-a-pum-pum. Bells will be ringing. I usually hit that note. Hold on, let me try again. Bells will be ringing. Hit it. Got a little high at the end, but you know, I could sing the Christmas tunes. I don't mind a lot of the Christmas songs. The Irving Berlin hits. I'm good with it. I don't get annoyed by Christmas. Some people complain Christmas music in the malls. I'm fine with it. Some people might complain that it consumes everybody in this country, not just people celebrating Christmas. I'm good with it. Hey, a day off is a day off. Let's just enjoy. Let's come together. Noel, Noel, Rudolph and Blitzen. All right. I got to get to the movie part. I already told you about my Chinese food experience. Delightful. Delightful. But what about the movie part? Didn't go to the theater. I'll be honest. Too tough. With a one-year-old, too tough. Not to say we couldn't get a babysitter, but come on, it's Christmas. So what do you do? You scroll through Netflix and you scroll and you scroll and you scroll. And you're going to find something. I guarantee it. Like George Zimmer would say at the men's warehouse, I guarantee it. He's back, by the way. They're putting him in the commercials again. Hey, let's celebrate George. Uh, There's a docu-series called Seven Days Out on Netflix. Seven Days Out. And they cover big events seven days prior to the big event. And they show you the behind the scenes. Action. Drama. And they describe what these people are doing before big events. So the first one is about the Westminster Dog Show. So it's time right now to dive deep into the topic of dogs. We're going to dive deep. And I'll just ask you straight up, who let the dogs? No, okay. But this was a cool documentary because I like the dog show, but I'm never more lost than when I do watch these dog shows. I don't understand how it's a competition. How did you just point to a Lhasa Apso and tell me that's a better dog than the Golden Retriever? How did these old judges, these old white people, you ever notice they only have white hair? To be a canine judge at the big shows, you have to be in your 80s. That is a law. So I don't even know why, but when they point to one dog and they say, the bloodhound, and people cheer, and then all of the other dogs, from the Yorkie to the Terrier, they are being told, nah, didn't make it. Because these old white-haired judges, they pointed to a different dog, and that dog's the winner. I didn't understand. And I know there's groups, the hound group, the sporting group, the toy group, whatever. I get that there's groups, but this docuseries taught me, oh, they all go to a best in breed show. So I could still understand that. Let's just take a beagle. You have a great beagle. You think you have the best beagle. You go to a show. You enter this dog in a show. And then a judge would deem your beagle best in breed. And then you get elevated to the Westminster dog show in Manhattan. That's the big crown. 
That's what you go for. And that's when you start competing against dogs that don't even look at you. If it's the hound category and your beagle wins best in breed, all of a sudden he's competing against an Afghan hound or a Borzoi or other hounds that don't really look like a beagle, but he still has to compete against them. What's the competition? They explained. It's something about the hips and the teeth and the balls or the no balls and the legs and the paws and the forehead and the width. And they measure everything. And these judges just sum it up really quickly with their eyeballs. And they either go, yep or nope. So it's not really based on the lap around the circle. You know, the lap around the circle, the women in their pencil skirts, the men in their suits. Why not just let them wear workout clothes? They're running in a circle with dogs. That doesn't sound like an event that you need to put a suit on for, but hey, I digress. So you learn in this Netflix docuseries, Seven Days Out, you learn what they're judging these dogs on. And it still doesn't make much sense. Because in the end, it's just so damn subjective to tell me that a Great Dane... Yep, superior than the Chihuahua, even though they both won their class. They won their best in breed, and they won their class at the dog show. You still have to have one big-time winner in the end. So if you lose, let's say you own the best Chihuahua in the world, and you lose to a Great Dane, it's not like you go back and you go, man, we could have been better. No, you fucking couldn't. You lost to a Great Dane. There's no way the Chihuahua could have done anything differently. God, be bigger be better. Your teeth were not at the right level. Your nuts, your nuts were clanking around in there. Keep them still. Keep them still. How do you get mad if you're the owner or the handler? How do you get upset? It's so subjective. It's based on really nothing but these old people eyeballing your dog. Yet, I can't change the channel and I'll probably watch these dog shows forever. And it started to look even more ridiculous as I watched and I watched and I watched. These people took it so seriously, these handlers and even the fans in the crowd, they're applauding like it's a Knicks game at Madison Square Garden. None of it made sense anymore to me. And I started to really dig deep and I thought, why do we even do this? I'm not just talking about dog shows. I'm saying, why do we live with these animals? I'm the biggest dog lover in the world. Just like a lot of you listening, you go, no, I'm the biggest dog lover. We all think we're the biggest dog lovers. And I'll explain why. There's an actual psychological response we have to dogs. But domesticating them and living with them and picking up their shit and walking them and bathing them and taking them to the vet. Why do we do this? And I started to research the history of this. And guess what I found out? Nobody can agree upon it. Anthropologists, archaeologists, researchers, scientists. There's so many different studies out there. And I think that brings me joy when there's not a concrete answer to something like a lot of religion. I think it's fun to talk about religion because there's not like proof. Boom. There you go. That was God. And here's the story. Here's the right story. Instead, it's about faith. And faith is interesting. Faith is fun. Faith gives you something to discuss and think about and maybe rely on. I like all of those aspects. But people that are science minded, they go, no, I need proof. Well, the origins of how we domesticated the dogs, there's not really much proof. I've read two books on this, okay? Now I'm just bragging. I have. I've read a couple of books, The Origins of Beagles and Dogs Altogether. So I can tell you what we know. Dogs came from wolves. If you're just learning that for the first time right now, take a moment. Take a moment. Don't drive off the road. Just take a moment to process that information. Dogs came from wolves. Okay, 99.99% of you go, I know, I know. And the domestication... They say could be 14,000 years ago all the way to 40,000 years ago. That's the range. Before that, dogs were not pets. So some scientists believe domestication 
was a one-time event. A one-time event in the Stone Age, whereas other scientists disagree. And their studies say, no, it, it was a multiple-time event where these dogs were domesticated, where the wolves evolved. But why? There's all these stories. And you can read about it. There's a tale that maybe humans kept wolf pups as pets. You know, just like, oh, they're so cute. Can I keep him? Ma, can I keep him? And then he tears you apart and rips out your larynx. And then you go, yeah, we just got to teach him not to do that. So maybe it was taught that humans started to keep the wolves. And then all of a sudden they felt safe enough with the humans inside the homes that they started to lose their aggressive traits. Eh, I don't know. But it was gradual. Gradual. Here's the coolest theory, though, that they domesticated themselves. Some anthropologists and scientists actually believe of survival of the friendliest, meaning that these gray wolves, they were competing with hunters and gatherers so many years ago, so many years ago, that they figured, hey, we all want food. What if we're just nice to these humans? That the wolves were smart enough to say, what if we're friendly to the humans? And it gives us access to the food. Then the competition is done. Because we become their friends and then they feed us. That's an interesting theory. That wolves were smart enough to say, instead of fighting against these hunters and gatherers, these humans, these homo sapiens, let's just kind of, you know, not show our fangs, kind of let our ears down a little bit. Now, some dogs still look like wolves, but most don't. And one of the studies says, when you see floppy ears and you see their coats, these are evolutionary traits that cause the wolves, perhaps, on their own to domesticate themselves. That's a theory. It makes you wonder, then why didn't we do this with a lot of animals? If we did this to wolves, wolves did this to themselves, why didn't it happen with bears, lions? How cool would that be if you could just own a bear and it would evolve into something else? A friendly bear, a nice cub, or a lion or a tiger, all these things that we're never going to touch in our lives. They didn't domesticate themselves. They remained aggressive and true to their nature. But wolves, these gray wolves, my God, I don't know when it happened. I don't know if it happened, but I like the fact that there's so many theories out there and there's not concrete proof. One archaeologist said, you know, probably everybody's a little bit right with their own study. Just smush them all together, smush them all together, all these theories, and there's probably a little bit of truth in all of them. It just makes no sense that they're all the same species. They're all the same exact species. You look at a Chihuahua and you look at a Great Dane and you go, same species. No other animal is like that, has such a range. No other animal. You show me 70 different snakes. They all kind of look like a snake. Show me a lot of bears, a polar bear, a grizzly bear, a black bear. They all kind of look like bears. And I know birds kind of vary, but you could tell a bird. Some animals you could just identify, but there are dogs who look droopy like a basset hound. You got a lot of droopy hounds. And then you could have dogs that belong in a purse. Thank you, Paris Hilton. And you could paint their nails. And then you have giant dogs, Akitas, Japanese fighting dogs. You have Labradors, Retrievers, Terriers. All of these are the same species. You know what that means? Humans are having a little bit too much fun with this. Because we're still doing it. We're still creating these hybrids. We're just taking our favorite traits and now we're going to put those with these traits. And now we have a new breed, sell it. Put it on the market. Put it in a box for Christmas. By the way, can we stop doing that? The old puppy gift on Christmas? Why put them in a box? Doesn't that make you nervous when you see these videos of children being presented with puppies on Christmas? How long has the puppy been in the fucking box? 
Just present the kid with the puppy on a leash in the backyard. It'll be the same exact effect. Kid doesn't need to know that the dog's been abused in a box already. Well, he's been in the box for two days, but we're waiting for Skylar to come down the stairs on Christmas morning and unwrap his gift. I'm not alone on this, right? We've all seen this dog in a box gift, but I digress. Humans are doing a lot of this, the domestication. But if you think about the origins, isn't it weird? But it goes back a long, long ways. I believe they dug up the first dog and man bones together over 14,000 years ago. So they drew the conclusion. Yeah, they were probably together, living together. And now we just accept it. Why? Now, this is a fact. Dogs release oxytocin in humans. It's the bonding hormone that your kids, your actual human kids release it within you. It makes you want to protect them. Makes you want to feed them and love them forever, forever. But that love that we feel towards dogs, at least most people, I realize some people don't like dogs, but the people that like dogs love dogs. You rarely meet somebody that just goes, yeah, I'm okay with dogs. No, most people love their dog. And it is because they have the ability. It's the only animal I read that has the ability to release this within us, this oxytocin, a bonding hormone. And that's why when people lose a dog, It is like losing a family member, the mourning, the grief. It is actually at the same level as human family for a lot of people. And it makes sense. They bond with you, you bond with them. And the whole survival of the friendliest theory, it plays into how social they are. These old gray wolves, when they nestled up to the hunters and said, hey, I'm on your team now. I'm on your team. I'm not going to bite you in the ass. They knew they had to be extra friendly. That's why dogs are extra social. Dogs are friendly. We're not even going to get into the pit bull debate right now. I've met plenty of friendly pit bulls. Plenty. Everything has an origin. Everything. Most people just take it at face value. We see humans every single day on the sidewalks, walking animals. These dogs. Why? Why are we just living with them? It's too normal. Let's start questioning this shit. It's even better when you can't agree on the origins. Like I just told you what I read about why Jews eat at Chinese restaurants. Maybe somebody else is listening and goes, nope, 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 nope. I heard that it's because this. And then we have conflicting theories. But regardless of the theories, we know the reality today is when you go to Ping's on December 25th, it looks like somebody is spinning in the club, line out the door. Yeah, we have an hour and a half wait, party of three. Yeah, we'll wait. Why not? Feed us the dumplings while we stand in line. People get dressed up. Shit. Also on Netflix, though, something that made me sick. Something that made me turn off the TV. Like I said, when you hate what you're watching so much, sometimes you just got to turn off the whole set. Turn off the tube. You can't even change the channel because you need that moment just to look into blackness and go, I need to get myself back. It's this documentary called American Meme. And it is a generation going on right now of people That only have one goal, and that's to be famous. And they use social media for that one singular purpose. To be famous. Zero skill, zero talent. So now we have people like the Kardashians and Paris Hilton, who I mentioned, who have zero talents, but they're so famous because they played this manipulative game of attracting social media, using any media. Could be TV, radio, magazines. And not actually having a talent or a skill. So this is kind of new. It's kind of a new phenomena. Where you don't sing. I don't act. I don't do anything special, actually. I don't have any talents, but I'm very famous. And this documentary focused on these people. 
who have millions of followers on Instagram or Twitter. And this one guy, all he does is spray champagne at naked women in clubs. And people come. People actually come to the clubs because they go, oh, I can't wait to get sprayed by this guy. And then he'll post the pictures. And this is appealing not just to a few, but hundreds of thousands or millions of people that follow him. What? This guy, DJ Khaled, no talent. But he knows how to film his life and attract enough people into his world. I guess this goes into the Truman Show theory of we want to see other people just living their lives. I guess. Maybe that is part of the human brain. We want to observe others living their lives. Relatability? Misery loves company or we want to celebrate somebody else that we don't know? I truly don't get it. But it was so upsetting. And you could watch this documentary because all they care about is looking at their phone and getting the likes and making sure it's the best photo, it's the best video, and they're competitive with other people. And it's all in the name of being famous. And they even said, you ask a lot of kids nowadays, what do you want to be when you grow up? And they say famous. Instead of I want to be famous for creating the cure for cancer, or I want to be famous for being the greatest piano player of all time, or I want to be famous for playing this sport. Instead, it's, yeah, I just kind of want to be famous. I want people to look at me, know me, talk about me, see me, and wait for the next post. Sickening. Turned it off in 15 minutes. And then what did I put on? The History of Comedy. CNN. Just watch the first episode. It's the exact opposite of American Meme. The earliest comedians in America... They talk about the Catskills and all these incredible writers with Sid Caesar who started off doing these Jewish clubs in the Catskills Mountains area where Jews would go on vacation and they would be on stage from Jerry Lewis to Henny Youngman, Neil Simon, Woody Allen, Mel Brooks. Yeah, just take the stage. There was no comedy club boom yet. So wherever you could get a microphone, it was probably along with a burlesque show or it was probably along with a review or a little performance here and there. But the names, oh my God, the names that came out of the Catskills. And then they focus on the other circuit, which was called the Chitlin Circuit. And this was for early black comics in a time with ugly segregation and oppression. And they talked about the progression of the earliest comics. They had to play the circuit. They weren't welcome in the white clubs or the white performance areas. So they had to start their own venues and play shows to their own people. Not a true ability to branch out and show their talents and display their skills to those of other races. And they talked about five names. They focused on five names. The history of black comedy is fascinating. And it's sad. And it makes you question so much. But the one they focused on to begin was Dick Gregory. And Dick Gregory, he used comedy to disarm white America. He said, if they're laughing, if I get them laughing, then they can't hate me because of this color of my skin. So at least for a moment, the laugh. And what was he making jokes about? Race. He used it as a vehicle to talk about the plight of black people in America. Was he angry? Yeah, but he was smart enough to know that comedy, if he made it funny, it would be more palatable for white America to understand what's going on in the black community. Seriously, you talk about ignorance. There were some white people at this time going way back that maybe didn't truly understand the difficulties, the challenges of being black in America at this time. We're trying to be a performer in America on the Chitlin circuit. So Dick Gregory, he crossed over. He was almost educational in a way of comedy. And he was talking about political issues, racial issues, but he realized no one's going to listen to me if I'm angry. I got to be funny. And he was. And he just passed away a few years ago, I believe. And then, of course, they get into this guy named William Cosby. You've heard of him? Bill Cosby. 
And they said his act was very different than Dick's. He definitely was able to cross over because his was not angry at all. It was censored. It was clean. It was for anybody. It had a heart. It had a warmth. It's interesting to talk about Bill Cosby now glowingly and admire a lot of the things he accomplished in the world of comedy because of what we found out. But truly, if you think about Cosby the comic, he was a pioneer. And that's what inspired Richard Pryor. So Richard Pryor, his earliest performances were emulating Bill until he found his voice, I believe when Pryor was actually in the Bay Area. In Berkeley, he found his voice. And he said, no, I'm going to be Richard, not just a Bill clone, a Cosby clone. And then they talk about Eddie Murphy. And they go, Eddie was a little different. You know, they all passed the baton from Dick Gregory to Bill Cosby to Richard Pryor. And then Eddie Murphy in the 80s. You know, here was a teenager, 18, 19 year old in the clubs. And he had all bravado, all this charisma. Unlike Richard, Pryor was self-deprecating, made fun of himself, loved talking about his own failures and just issues and rough patches throughout life. That was not Eddie. Eddie was all about confidence, looking good. And this documentary from CNN, they said black America really liked that. They were done with self-deprecation. They were done with woe is me. They wanted to say, let's show a confident version of ourselves. And that was Eddie. And Eddie became maybe the biggest comic of all time. Arguably the biggest of all time. Maybe because of his success in the movies as well. Pryor did not have Eddie Murphy's success in the movies. And the final guy they featured was Dave Chappelle. Just at the end, they said, oh yeah, there's a genius too. And they showed some clips of the Chappelle show. Oh, and Chris Rock. What am I talking about? Chris Rock. Uh, just watch it. Because I could go on and on about Chris Rock. How smart he is. How edgy he is. He's courageous too. He says some things to insult his own people. You know, playing with stereotypes. People get so worried about stereotypes. Not realizing that a lot of them are based in truth. A lot. And not all are so bad. Some people don't want to be pigeonholed. Or told, this is how you are because you were born this way. But there are some common traits among cultures that are shared. That's undisputable. And Chris Rock, the way he pontificates on that, I never found him to be laugh out loud, but fuck is he smart. A lot of the things he says, you know, a guy like Chris Rock should probably run for office. And I mean that. Aren't we doing that now? Just turning entertainers into politicians? Chris Rock would actually be respectable. Well-received, I believe. The only way to advance comedy, though, is to push the envelope. And not just to be crude or obscene but to just open up perspectives let's see the world in a different light that's what the great comics do comedy in 20 years is going to look a lot different and these are people who are tempted to push boundaries so think about this for a moment follow me with this thought i'm looking at my car the other day my car i'm looking at the speedometer it maxes out at 160 follow me with this comparison i'm never going to go 160 why did they build the car this way? Can it even go to 160? I don't know. I'll never know. I'm never going to drive the car 160, but my speedometer goes all the way to 160. I know I have to stay in the parameters of the speed limit or else it's breaking the law. I know that. But 160, my mind will wonder. There could be temptation to get close. For some people, there's a lot of temptation. The need for speed. But that's a microcosm of how the human brain is wired. You could take the path that you're guided down, starting in kindergarten, bell to bell, subject to subject, elementary school, middle school, high school, college, find a career, find a mate, have some kids, live in a home. You know, there is this path, the American dream or just the normal path. And then there's people who veer. And I'm not just saying down the criminal path, but there's people who veer 
they zig, they zag, and they go, I'm not interested in that path. I want to see what my brain can do. I'm not just going to accept societal norms. So my car is wired that way. My car is wired to just show me what it can do. You're not supposed to. You're not supposed to drive this way, but your speedometer says it's there. It exists. That's the human brain. Most of us are wired to kind of do the right thing. Get in where you fit in, you know, not break too many laws, not ruffle too many feathers. Sure, you know, find joy where you can. Try to understand your purpose in the world. All these normal things. Normal. But then, when you see a guy like a Dave Chappelle or a Chris Rock, you go, oh yeah, they veered. They veered. They went more towards the 160 on the speedometer of life in the brain. And those are the people that advance the world. The creators who are tempted, not just to do something criminal, but tempted to do something that has never been done before. How many of us can say that in our lives? that we've ever done anything that's never been done before. I'd love to say me, but no. You kidding me? I'm just doing things, replicating what's been done in the world for so long. I have a dog on my bed right now snoring. Got a kid I love. Eliciting that oxytocin chemical. Thank you. Got a wife, got a home, got a job. Hey, I represent what most people are doing. Not to say the opposite of that is helping to advance society, but in a really positive way. If 2019 is upon you, and you're tempted to do something that just hasn't been done, fucking do it. And I guess I'm talking about myself too. I want this to be a year. Here's where I get preachy, I guess. Didn't even know this was coming. But I want this to be a year when I look back one year from now and I go, all right, did something that hadn't been done. And it won't be this podcast because there's millions of these. I'm enjoying it, but there's millions So create, 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 make this world a better place and have yourselves a happy new year. Wishing you all the best as this calendar flips to 2019. Much love, respect. Boom, boom. Booyah. Lot of mercy. Episode 43. It's coming to an end. Let's say goodbye to it. Let's watch it float away into the ether. Farewell. Adios. Au revoir. Sayonara. Shalom. Peace out. Goodbye. It's in the books. I... We'll talk to you soon. Uh-huh.